Welcome to another edition of Galaxy Moonbeam Nightsight. I'm Smitty. I'm Mike. And I'm Ian. On this edition of our show, Ian talks about Flash Gordon. Mike remembers Tiger Beat Fan Magazine. This and the April Obits on this edition of Galaxy Moonbeam Nightsight. Well, we're so glad to have you with us on another edition of Galaxy Moonbeam Nightsight. To get us started, one of the first fiction space heroes turned 75 this year. Ian Rose will give us a 21-ray gun salute. Before there was Star Trek, before there was Star Wars, even before there was Battlestar Galactica, there was he. Before Captain Video, before Tom Corbett's Space Cadet, and even before the War of the Worlds on radio or at the movies, there he was... Flash Gordon. In Australia, the comic strip had been retitled Speed Gordon because the word Flash itself was showy and dishonest. And now Speed is associated with drugs. And you young folk may think Flash Gordon was a porno movie. Wrong. By the way, there was an adult version of this film called Flash Gordon. But I'm all over the map here. I'll bring in Gilbert Smith and Mike Bragg. Guys, I'm talking about the 70th anniversary of the Flash Gordon serials. And there they were, three. 1936, Flash Gordon. 1938, Flash Gordon's trip to Mars. And 1940, Flash Gordon conquers the universe. What are your memories on any or all of these? I didn't catch the movies too well. I saw the Buster Crab series. But mm. I really enjoyed In fact, I went out and I forgot where, maybe it was Walmart. But there's a Flash Gordon. There was one year, right, Ian? 54, 55, the Flash Gordon TV series. Short-lived. Yeah, but I'm I'm mm-hmm. concentrating mainly on the serials. Yeah. Well, what I'm getting at is, did the TV series spin off from the serials? I I'm d- going somewhere with that. I didn't think there was any connection. Okay. Although the fact of the matter is those serials played a lot on early television. Okay, because they, they would always... It seemed like there was a method or a recipe. There was always a villain or a hideous monster, a beautiful woman, and something to be saved, be it a planet... Or a people, a civilization. And to top it all off, you know those the, the Flash Gordon serial, actually the TV show you're talking yeah. about, was actually filmed in Germany. That's what I thought. Okay, oh, really? <laughs> well, my two things on them are, are, number one, that they were a staple of early television. Yes, they, they were cheap, and in the early days of TV when there was no money, that was an easy way of programming a station. And the other thing is, of course, back in the 30s, these were serials. They were meant to bring you back the following week, right? That's right. To get the following part, and they would leave you with a cliffhanger? Mm-hmm. Okay. Sometimes they were cheat hangers, you know. <laughs> they, they, were, they were worse in the beginning, and then when you came back, it wasn't so bad. <laughs> well, and, and, and the planet Mongo, the term planet Mongo almost became a, a verb, didn't it? You or did, a punchline. To, to Mongo? Planet Mongo. I Mongo, you Mongo, she Mongo. Remember, did you catch the movie Summer of 42? Yes. And uh, was it Hermie? The actor, the kid, and his mother saying, where are you going? You're going out the door. Where are you going? I'm going to the planet Mongo. <laughs> and I understand it. And even my dad said that that was like a punchline. The planet Mongo was, oh, we're going to the baseball game, but we got there so late, we had to park it way out in planet Mongo. Ah, okay. So yeah, it actually became famous for its time. Well, it became, some of the spinoffs became pop culture themselves, mm. some of the terminologies. Okay. Well, you know, since we're going into space, and if Ray Block were here, I'd say, A little traveling music, Ray. (laughs) This is Franz Liszt's Les Preludes, which was the theme for the third of the Gordon serials. Wikipedia says Flash Gordon began as a comic strip in 1934 and as an answer to Buck Rogers, which was launched the same way in 1929. Apparently, Flash was more popular. In 1936, 75 years ago this year, 
Universal Studios presented the first of the three Gordon serials. Buster Crab was Flash, Gene Rogers as Dale Arden, Frank Shannon as Dr. Hans Alexis Zarkov, and Charles Middleton as the evil Ming the Merciless, arguably the best villain Hollywood ever produced. On the planet Mongo and on Mars, they would visit Arborea, Phrygia, the undersea kingdom of the Sharkmen, the flying city of the Hawkmen, the clay people, the forest people, the lion men, the rock people, and the roll people. I was just kidding about the roll people. The Gordon serials were the most expensive and the best of all the Hollywood serials from the silent era to the 50s. These serials were so good. How good were they? That they became, as you mentioned, uh, Smitty, a part of early TV and could match special effects for the early attempts by early TV. These serials had their monsters. Universal must have had a lot of practice with Frankenstein and Dracula. Mongo had giant lizard creatures out in the remote areas. They made appearances in two of the three serials. How about that huge lobster monster that Flash Gordon fights in the Tunnel of Terror in the first serial? Here's a trivia answer. The man who dressed up in the lobster suit was Glenn Strange. He would also appear as the Frankenstein monster in other movies at the same studio. This was the same Glenn Strange who was the TV Lone Ranger's archenemy, Butch Cavendish, some years later. And Glenn Strange would end up tending bar on TV's Gunsmoke at the Long Branch. Uh, where was I? A little traveling music, Ray. Flash Gordon, during his exploits, found time for romance. He was in love with Dale Arden, but Ming's daughter, Princess Aura, was in love with him. So there were some interesting subplots here. Between the second and third Gordon serials, there was a Buck Rogers serial. As I mentioned, Rogers preceded Gordon as a comic strip. And who did they pick to play Buck? Buster Crab again. Now, I've seen all of these serials many times. I've read that Buck Rogers did not get critical acclaim. Nevertheless, I enjoyed it. It's a science fiction Rip Van Winkle story where a man is put in suspended animation and wakes up 500 years later. It appears to me that Buck Rogers was more science fiction and Flash Gordon was more science fantasy. And would you believe that in Buck Rogers, from 1939, they actually had a beaming device? As I mentioned, the Flash Gordon serials were reborn in early television. Mike was talking about that. Back in the 1950s, they were part of the show Super Serial on Channel 13 in the New York area. In the 1960s, Channel 11 New York ran Flash Gordon in the evening. You see, the 20-minute serial episode fit into the half-hour TV format quite nicely with time for commercials. Flash Gordon would materialize as late as 1980 in a five-nights-a-week show on a San Diego-area TV station. Later, Flash Gordon ended up on video and DVD. There were some old-fashioned serial-type lines that came out of those serials. How about when Flash was in dire straits and the Emperor Ming would say, Nothing can save Flash Gordon now. Even with this three-serial series, we saw some evolutions. In the first, Dale Arden was scantily clad. In the second, she was more solidly dressed. And by the third, Dr. Zarkov noted she was a chemist and could assist Flash in his endeavors. By the third Gordon serial, there was a new Dale Arden, played by Carol Hughes. In the first and third serials, Flash, Dale, and Zarkov visited Mongo. As I mentioned in the second, they went to Mars. I was reading John Gosling's book on waging the War of the Worlds, the story of the panic broadcast of 1938. It seems Universal took advantage of the fallout from that radio drama. When they issued the Mars serial as a feature, 
It was called Mars Attacks the Earth because of the radio drama. One more time, Ray, a little traveling music. By the way, Princess Aura had to give up Flash because he loved Dale. Instead, Princess Aura married Prince Baron, the rightful ruler of Mungo, which leads me with this dilemma. Was he a prince or was he a baron? I still don't know. Princess Aura was quite a temptation. She would have been described back then as a girl who was quite healthy, if you know what I mean. I'm Ian Gordon Rogers Rose. Well, Ian, I'm wondering now if I was if I was watching the the one season TV series or the serials. I guess they were pretty much jumbled up over uh, daytime TV after school. It's a possibility, okay? Because those I think the the TV show uh, started in 1953. Well, yeah, because I at that time, you know, when you're a kid, you don't know Buster Crab from Herbie Crab Legs. You know, they're all you don't know the stars, but now it makes sense, and it also the tie-in to Flash Gordon. And all of those series, all those serialized, I noticed a common denominator was the Griffith Park Observatory in mm-hmm. L.A. They're usually up there, and the the rocket ship would go across. You could see the little pieces of thread holding the rocket in front of <laughs> in front of the camera. But there was also always the dome of the Griffith Park right. Observatory yeah, that the rocket flew over. As expensive as the budget was in, back in that day to put that type of series together, they were done very inexpensively. When did Griffith Park Observatory open? I believe in thirty thirty one. Well, it was a it was a depression project. Oh, was it really? So it would have fit right in line and. Rebel Without a Cause. Some of the greatest scenes in that movie were filmed at the Griffith Park Observatory. And along those lines, were these, Ian, were these serials really done on the cheap? They were really, really... No, no, the Gordon, actually the Gordon, the first one, was quite expensive. And when I say, I don't have a figure, but it was actually in the hundreds of thousands of dollars. Oh, wow. And that was uh, considered quite expensive at the time. The subsequent ones were less expensive... But I think they were still high priced. Uh huh. Okay. That's what made them unusual. And of course, they obviously they made their money back many times over because not only were they serials, but as we said earlier, they were also shown on early television. Yeah. So they made their money several times over. And don't forget, the serials were were truncated into a feature movie. Oh, okay. So they That's they, right. they recycle them that way as well. Okay. Wow. So these things they got, they were coming and going in those days. Wow. How yeah. interesting. They certainly got a lot of mileage out of them. They, yeah, that was the nature, name of the game in, wow. in the Hollywood business. How interesting. Uh, yeah, I think Hollywood, I think the Griffith Park Observatory is the tie-in because I know that the Merciless Ming, Merciless Ming from Mungo had one of the uh, one of the episodes there. And the Griffith Park Observatory was there in Rebel Without a Cause and, and the sci-fis, um, mm-hmm. The Amazing Colossal Man in 1957. Mm-hmm. There's a famous cave called Bronson Caves. Yes. Now, it's not connected to Charles Bronson, as far as I know, but the caves are in Griffith Park, Uh and I think these show up in the Gordon series. Yes, quite a bit of it. Uh, uh, D.W. Griffith, this was probably before the observatory, used the Hollywood Hills as uh, the majority of his movie sets, Mm -hmm. especially on the westerns. Oh, did he? They did shoot other things in those Bronson caves, right? Oh gosh, I think uh, the, the the entrance was uh, bat, the Bat Cave. Ah, okay, oh, all right. And yeah, it was bat also cave. the entrance to the uh, remember the thing, a robot monster from yes, 53? Yes, they use it then. That's what I thought. Yeah, and yeah. somebody told me the John, John Wayne movie, he drove a carriage through the front. Oh, okay. Because I was going to say, the Griffith Observatory, because of how it looks, because of the architecture, has lent itself to a lot of movies. Oh, absolutely. You know, a lot of, like you said, Rebel Without a Cause, uh, a lot of these horror pictures. It's really been a, a neat venue to shoot movies. I think of Flash Gordon, and I, my mind immediately ties through to the Griffith Park Observatory, where so many of those 
it was an eerie uh, space, a futuristic yeah. look, the dome, and then they would open the dome and the telescope would start sliding out. And next thing you know, Flash Gordon was viewing the heavens for the next planet to save. Yeah. Or the, the next dilemma <laughs> where the evil Ming could and be it, waiting. That's right. Yes. As a matter of fact, Ming made several comebacks. <laughs> yes. He was a hard one to kill. He's a tough one. Yeah. He, yeah. <laughs> He's also a tough one to follow, by the way. Follow, exactly. Well, Ian, thanks a lot for that. And uh, Mike, thanks for your input on that. That was really interesting. We're going to pause right now for our retro commercial, and then we'll be back with more of GalaxyMoonbeamNightSight.com. So don't go away. We'll be right back. McDonald's believes in getting food to your kids before they get to each other. Such good food, too. McDonald's famous French fries, triple thick creamy shakes, lean beefy cheeseburgers and hamburgers, icy cold soft drinks. And here's a plus, spill-proof lids on all beverages. Another plus, napkins that are big as a bib. Quality, cleanliness, extra care service, that's McDonald's. A total value that's unmatched anywhere. McDonald's is our kind of place. Welcome back to Galaxy Moonbeam Nightsight. We are your talk radio network for nostalgia and baby boomer stuff. And we're back now with Mike. And Mike, you just recently added a new item to your collection, uh, a Tiger Beat fan magazine from 1965. Tell us about that. You know, actually, I found... I found, found a few of them at a garage sale, and I was just amazed that they were in such great condition. And, you know, folks, just you know, your mom would go up to the checkout stand at the grocery store, and there would be National Enquirer, the Tatler, and all, they called them the scandal rags and the gossip sheets. Well, us uh, mid-60s kids had our own, and one of them was called Tiger Beat Magazine. I remember in Los Angeles, Tiger Beat Magazine was the scandal sheet. <laughs> That uh, that teenage and prepubescent teens would grab it. They were thirty five cents. You get them at the check stand at the Market Basket or Vons, and you you get all the scoop on the big rock and roll stars and some of the uh, the actors who appealed to the younger generation. Uh, these particular copies were from nineteen sixty five. I did a little research and I thought I'd share it. We're going to pop some of the covers up on the website for you to take a look at. But Tiger Beat was founded uh, back in September 1965, and it went out on the newsstands at 35 cents. A guy had created a magazine before that called Teen Magazine. His name was Charles Laufer, and he saw a further need to promote a publication devoted to the rising young stars of the 60s. It was just like a magazine for adults. It would feature, it would uh, attract uh, teens who are interested in other teen idols, female readers primarily, ages 10 to 19 years old. And that, that's a tough demographic to fill, but this guy pulled it off because within a year it was the number one magazine in the United States for that age bracket. They also released spinoff magazines and special issues. So special issues, and I don't know if you had girl cousins, but I did. I had three in particular lived out in Temple City, mm-hmm. and any time the Tiger Beat special would come out featuring the Beatles, there would be a run on Scotch tape. J.J. <laughs> you know, Newberry's, because girls like my cousins, who were 12, 13 years old, would tear out all the pictures of John, Paul, George, and Ringo, and 
wallpaper their bedrooms <laughs> with the pages of these Tiger Beat magazines. Uh, the magazines, they ran articles with such catchy titles as Sean, a junk food junkie. Leif Garrett's Sad, Sad Childhood. It's probably not as sad as his adulthood, is it? <laughs> no. Uh, Bobby Sherman's Favorite Type of Girls. Oh, boy. Olivia Newton-John's New Love. And this was further on in time, just to give you yeah. an idea, over the years, because I had found some Tiger Beats 20 years later in the 80s, and it's basically the same format, a little formula of intrigue, some real catchy headlines. But I think the magazines are just as collectible as some of the radio surveys we've talked about and some of the radio magazines because it is an important part of American pop culture. Uh, the British Invasion, 1964, 1965, here comes this magazine talking about Herman's Hermits. I've got an issue that profiles Jerry and the Pacemakers. How long ago have you heard a Jerry and the Pacemakers song, Ian? It, it came over the same time. You mean Ferry Across the Mersey? The British Invasion. Mm, 1964. I had saved several Tiger magazines. Have you ever heard of them before now? I Just barely. I'm wondering, can you tell us, remember some of the ads that were in them? Oh, well, mostly it was pimple cream. <laughs> yeah. Pimple I, cream was probably a staple. Clearasil. Uh, yeah. Clearasil yep. was the one. And I remember uh, they would just blatantly put an ad out there for Clearasil. Who needs zits? And then somebody at school, you know, my brother would take his marker out and he'd write underneath, Zitz needs Zitz. <laughs> but Clearasil was dominant, 7-Up, the Soda Pop, uh, record labels when sure. a new record came out. Sure. I, I, I just uh, can't imagine how much money this guy oh. made by selling stuff to the, uh, but to largely, the teen element. largely it was the girl teens that bought this. It was the girl teens because uh, they were impressionable. He had the format down, so he'd do a special on the monkeys. And he'd have the whole middle of the magazine with this big blow-up black and whites of the members of the Monkees, Mickey Dolenz wow. and Peter Tork, Michael Nesmith, and, of course, uh, Davy Jones. You got them all. Who lives in Oceanside. Does he? Or Carlsbad. No. Hey, what's the difference when you're Davy Jones? That's right. And you're in the North County of San Diego. <laughs> That's right. Hey, uh, <laughs> hey, hey, we're the North County people. <laughs> That's right. But, I, you know, I was a giddy preteen in that time, just like everyone I knew in the 60s, and that was exciting. That was like... Like getting the daily newspaper, getting the the new Tiger Beat magazine, and, and going through and, and getting all the scoop. Mm, yeah. Musicians, where's Elvis? Elvis is working on a on a new movie, and Margaret's going to be there with them. And it was it, it was a Teen Idol magazine, and now of course everything's online, and they have the blogs and the Facebook pages right. and whatnot. But we do go full circle. There were fan groups and targeted fan clubs, and. That was the other staple of the Teen uh, the teen Beat, Tiger Beat magazines was the fan club applications and the pages. You'd cut them out, send a dollar to become a, a member of the Elvis Lovers fan club. Your dollar would get you these postcards, <coughs> trading cards, maybe a poster, a stamp. And you imagine every kid that age sending a dollar to somebody. Oh, somebody yeah. did very well. I would sure. think so. What a racket this thing is. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> But anyway, I checked out because we are a collectibles show, too, and we do get emails, people finding something, maybe finding something in an old trunk in the garage, and what's it worth? And I did a little research here, and I'm talking now because uh, uh, Tiger Beat ran all the way up, and actually it's still running. The son of the founder purchased the magazine in 2003, and it's still in publication. But I'm talking 60s-era Tiger Beat magazines. Present value, uh, the very earliest ones, the mid-60s, they go $15 if they're intact, if the pinups are inside of them still and haven't been removed and scotch taped to my cousin's bedroom walls, <laughs> and they're in excellent condition, 15 to 25 bucks. The first issue, the issue 
that I was lucky enough to find is up to 25 bucks, which is not bad considering I think I paid 50 cents for it. And later issues are 3 to $5. But again, keep them. They're fun. They're collectible. They're news. It's Pop Americana. And someday these magazines will be gone, never to return. I imagine that if you had one that had uh, the Beatles on the cover or Elvis on the cover, they would be considerably more valuable. Is that? No, oh, Beatles, that, everything. Yeah. Sure. Bob, Dil- Bob Dylan's okay. a very, very popular one. Bob Dylan, anything Elvis. There are people who collect side genres. They don't collect Tiger Beat magazines, but they would collect anything Elvis or anything Beatles or, okay. or anything that would have any reference to John Lennon would make wherever that appeared three, four times more valuable than if it was just a, a fan magazine. I wonder what became of Bobby Sherman. Bobby Sherman, I will answer that for you right now. You will. After I gulp. I always get a little giddy when the subject turns to Bobby Sherman. He's going to gulp like Eric Severide. Bobby, anyway. <laughs> Bobby Sherman actually is a reserve police officer up in the Los Angeles area. Is I he? know that because my brother Tim, who I hope is listening to this episode, is reserve officer in uh, the Los Angeles area. I don't know if Bobby Sherman's reserve LAPD officer or a reserve support officer, but I do have a picture. And you know what? I'll get my brother to send that down. We'll post that up, too, of my brother Tim and Bobby Sherman, both in uniform at a Community Day event where LAPD was there. So uh, he's been a staunch supporter of police and law enforcement. He's given back to the community. He's one of the classiest, coolest guys still around. And not to mention, I do have a problem with Bobby because he took Julie away from me. Julie, 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 do you love me? And all this time she loved Bobby. But I forgive him for that because he's paid back to the community. He's paid his dues. But Bobby Sherman is alive and kicking and doing very well up in Los Angeles. I believe it's San Fernando Valley, but he gives back to the community. Thanks for that update. Excellent, Mike. Mike, do we know when Tiger beat Fan Magazine began? Did it begin back in the 50s or was it in the 60s? Actually, Tiger beat. There were versions of Tiger Beat, not called Tiger okay. Beat. One was called Teen, okay. and one was called Teen Beat. Okay, all right, maybe that's what I'm thinking and, about. And they were pulp-type, very cheaply produced. Tiger Beat came out in September 65 okay. with a very glossy, very colorful, very pictorial cover shell. Okay. Right. And that's what made them so popular because they, they just dazzled on the newsstands. And for $35, I, $35, most kids I knew made a dollar a week allowance. Sure. Yeah. So you had enough to go get a magazine, ice cream. And, 35 cents. Yeah. yeah. Interesting. Well, Mike, thank you for filling us in on thank that. Thank you, and, and we'll uh, put that. We'll put yes. those covers up. Put those covers and ask your brother for his picture so we'll that do. we can uh, put all, that up. All together now. Julie, 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 do you love me? Julie, 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 do you care? Have you any old Tiger Beat magazines? <laughs> you take 50 cents a piece for the whole box. Well, that's mm. good. That's about enough of that. Yeah. All right. <laughs> Moving on. She was the greatest movie star of all. Ian Rose has his obit report. She was a queen, and she had the name befitting one, Elizabeth but she was referred to as Liz, Liz Taylor. She died on March 23rd at age 79 of congestive heart failure. Now, you probably generally know her life story, but here are some facts you may have missed. It was biographer William J. Mann who called the British-born American actress Elizabeth Taylor the, quote, greatest movie star of all. She won two Oscars for Best Actress, 
one for Butterfield 8 in 1960, and the other for Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf in 1966. Also, she received the Jean Herschelt Humanitarian Academy Award in 1992 for her work fighting AIDS. And she received a Life Achievement Award from the American Film Institute, who named her seventh on their list of the, quote, greatest American screen legends. At her death, Taylor left an estate estimated at $600 million to $1 billion, her wealth coming mostly from business ventures. She struggled with her health, being hospitalized more than 70 times, having at least 20 major operations, coming close to death at least four times. She smoked cigarettes into her mid-50s. She was treated for alcoholism and prescription drug addiction at the Betty Ford Clinic twice in the 1980s. At five foot four, she repeatedly gained and lost weight, reaching both 119 pounds and 180 pounds in the 80s. She was married eight times to seven husbands, had four children, three births, one adoption, also had 10 grandchildren and four great-grandchildren. She was buried in a private Jewish ceremony at Forest Lawn in Glendale. Taylor is the subject of more than 50 books, but she never wrote a comprehensive autobiography. Other recent passings include, on March 17th, country pop chart topper Wings of a Dove, Ferlin Husky passed away at 85 from congestive heart failure. On March 18th, Chief negotiator with Iran for the release of the 52 U.S. hostages. Warren Christopher, President Clinton's Secretary of State, died also at 85 from complications of bladder and kidney cancer. March 27th, a star of Alfred Hitchcock's Rope and Strangers on a Train, Farley Granger passed away also at 85 from natural causes. And preferring the streets of New York to the back lots of Hollywood, Sidley Lumet, who directed film classics 12 Angry Men, Serpico, Network, and others died April 9th at the age of 86 of lymphoma. I'm Ian Rose. Thank you very much, Ian. I suppose that I consider Elizabeth Taylor when she was uh, young, when she was very, very young, to be one of the most beautiful women I've ever seen. Remember when she did Father of the Bride with Spencer yeah. Tracy? National Velvet. Yeah, yeah. Yep. just beautiful girl. National beautiful, Velvet, beautiful, yeah. beautiful, beautiful eyes. What memories do you guys have of any of her movies that stand out? Yeah, and people have... People have talked smack about her off and oh, yeah. on, you know, oh, yeah. the John Belushi skit on Saturday Night Live, sure. and of course all of the talk about her and her, her friendship with Michael Jackson, right. but I think she dripped of class and elegance her entire life. And I might add, we we just got some breaking news here regarding Liz Taylor, uh, her jewelry. She called her jewels her sparklers, her little sparklers. Uh-huh. But they've been valued at uh, approximately $150 million, and they're going to go up the family. The the estate of Liz Taylor have released these. Christie's Auction House is going to be holding the auction for Elizabeth Taylor's jewelry, and they're going to wow. auction most of this stuff off, most oh, of man. these jewels. Uh, you might have a chance of, of getting some uh, Elizabeth Taylor sparklers i don't know you've you obviously if you're out there listening you got more money than i've got yeah. <laughs> but uh, any of us and you know these things are going to go for more than they normally would yeah. because it's attached to a celebrity well right. i read the right. news break here at 150 million it's going to go way over 150 million just by association and and liz did not buy junk jewelry right, right. so it's going to be valuable as it stands it's going to be valuable because the lady wore it at some time in her life or it was in her in her jewelry box or jewelry boxes and uh she wore her jewelry distinctively so imagine buying a piece of her jewelry and being able to find the promo shot or the movie shot 
where she's wearing that piece of jewelry. Don't you wish that the marriage with Richard Burton had worked out better? I mean, I know they were married twice, but I was hoping they would have done more of those husband and wife. They did Virginia Woolf, of course. But I was hoping they'd do more of that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. They did. I think they did some other movies like that. I wish they'd done a lot more of that. Yeah. Don't you guys? I, I think that was just, and, and I was, a, of, of course, obviously, I was much younger then, but yeah. the Liz Taylor-Richard Burton relationship to me was just incredible, especially if you watch Cleopatra. Yes. That was the big screen epic of actually, I think, their personal married life. I think that's yeah. how that's pretty much a day in the life of Liz and Richard I is what so. you saw in Cleopatra. Yeah. The the energy and the emotion there and the passion yeah. between yeah. two people. They're two very, very extremely passionate, very intense people that found each other in their lifetimes. Very good. Well, we remember Elizabeth Taylor and all of the other individuals who uh, Ian mentioned uh, in this month's obituary report. And, of course, every... Every month or so, we have uh, news of these passings, and Ian always has that information for us. We thank Ian. And we'll go back to Ian now to uh, close out the show. Well, I I want to just close out and say to you folks that uh, we've got some websites for you to uh, make note of. Galaxy Moonbeam Night Sight at gmail.com is the email, and the website galaxymoonbeamnightsight.com. And we're also on Facebook, too. So friend us if you are a Facebook fan and join us on our page, all right? And all together now, I'm Ian. I'm Smitty. And I'm Mike. And that's the show. We hope to see you next time. Good night, Julie.